to John chapter 20 this morning. So we're almost finished with the gospel of John. Getting real close to to the end. My dad refers to John chapter 20 as the ninth proof of the deity of Christ, as found here in the Gospel of John. This morning, we're going to look, first of all, review the structure. We haven't talked in that much detail about the structure of the way that John laid out his gospel. So we want to look at that for just a minute this morning as we start. I refer to chapter 20 as the climax of the book, the high point in the story of Christ. And John just beautifully laid all of this out, and he laid it out. It's interesting, he laid out the resurrection in four points. Um, It's like he gives us four different scenes that he sets to show us the resurrection. Um, But as we look at the structure of the book of John, first, John chapter 1, we have the introduction where he introduces Jesus in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He introduces Christ as the Word. He introduces him as the Creator. Then chapters 2 through 12 is a series of signs. Um, They were specific of the miracles of Christ that were chosen by the Holy Spirit um, working through John um, to lay out evidences of who Jesus was, that he was the Christ, that he was Messiah. He lays out throughout this, the third thing I have mentioned here is the I Ams. He is laying out his deity because we saw at the burning bush when um, Moses met God at the burning bush. God introduced himself as, I am. Well, who do I tell him sent me? Tell him that I am has sent you. Well, you get to the gospel of John and Jesus says, I am. I am the good shepherd. I am and the bread of life. He goes through a number of I am statements, but he's presenting himself. He's presenting his deity that he is equal with God. And um, so this is laid out. And of course, in the middle here, signs, confessions, we have those those statements, those I believe statements of people acknowledging people that met Jesus. Um, it's like it's almost like it's laid out not just as a story, but it's like John is giving us witnesses in court. These are the people who testified that Jesus is who he said he is. And so he has a number of confessions from people like Martha, which is my favorite. Um, where she says, I believe that thou art the Christ that should come into the world. Um, The the men of Samaria, um, where the woman at the well was, is Sychar. Um, The men of Sychar, they said that they believed that he was the Christ, the Savior of the world. And so you have these numerous confessions throughout the Gospel of John, and we're going to find that finalized in John chapter 20 with a final confession. Um, Chapters 13 to 17, we have Jesus alone with his disciples as he begins to talk about abiding in him. He begins giving them information about the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit's going to do when he comes, what they can expect of him. 
and we've studied that in some pretty good detail. Um, chapters 18 to 19, we have the trial and crucifixion of Christ. And then chapter 20, the high point here, um, I in CEF training, you always love, you were, we were trained to always look at a Bible story and find where's the high point? Where's the climax of the story? What's the exciting part? And it's usually going to be towards the end. John did that. And then there's going to be a short conclusion. And that's what John did. But he didn't also give us a conclusion. He really, in chapter 21, which we'll look at next time, he gave us a postscript. He wanted to add a little more information at the end of the book. I mean, you get to the end of chapter 20, and it sounds like he's closing the book. Well, he kind of is. Chapter 21 is not less important, but in the structure of how he wrote his book, everything's laid out where the story ends in chapter 20, and then he says, but I need to tell you one more thing. And he sticks that in. And it's powerful what he sticks in at the end. After how he has highlighted the disciple Peter, he doesn't want to end the story with Peter being separated from Christ. He's got to finalize that. And if you remember when we were looking at the trial of Christ, and of course, um, John spends most of his emphasis on Pilate, um, we find Peter um, denying Christ, and, um, but Peter was really showing up in John's story. And then all of a sudden he disappears, and he's going to bring him in in the postscript at the end. <clears throat> the resurrection, chapter 20, takes part in four different scenes, as I've already said. Um, first of all, we have Peter and John. <coughs> Sorry. Of course, it's introduced <clears throat> through Mary Magdalene, but what does she do? Right away, she grabs Peter and John, and John focuses in on Peter and John first. Then we have Jesus and Mary. It goes back to Mary Magdalene, and um, we have Jesus' conversation with her. Jesus and the disciples as a group, and then Jesus and Thomas. And we have faith. And notice I put the seed being planted, the seed or sprouting there, the seed's getting bigger and bigger, and it grows into a big tree that's rooted. And that's really what um, chapter 20 does. Remember the purpose of the Gospel of John, that ye might believe. And watch how faith grows and what Jesus says about faith at the end of this chapter. <clears throat> so let's get in here. Peter and John. Chapter 20, verse 1. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, <clears throat> when it was yet dark. And we're not going to take time this morning to compare <coughs> the different Gospels, <clears throat> seeing the little bit different um, takes and comparing the differences in the stories and things, lining those up. That's a lot of fun to do. But that wasn't John's purpose. So let's try to stick to John's purpose here. She comes <clears throat> early when it was yet dark unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Now, what does she do? Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. 
Now, if you are one of those that say this was probably John, as though there's some question about it, John's going to make very clear at the end of the chapter, he's talking about himself here. So <clears throat> we'll go ahead and establish this is definitely John. The one whom Jesus loved and saith unto them, they have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth <clears throat> and that other disciple and came to the sepulcher. I love this verse. This is a, a really comical verse coming up here to me in the scriptures. It just really adds um, a lot to understand these two guys and their character. They have a great relationship, apparently, but look at verse 4. So they ran both together. Well, they're excited. They start running. And the other disciple did outrun Peter. John says, I outran him. John was younger. My dad always said John was younger, and so he could still outrun Peter. But whatever the case, <clears throat> John specifies here. These two start running together. John's so excited, he outruns Peter, and he gets there. And look what happens. Again, seeing their personalities really come alive in these verses, Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple, uh, sorry, verse 4. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. And he stooping down and looking in. Notice that. He stooped down and looked in. He didn't just run up and just barge in. That was not like John. John's more careful. John's more cautious. John's going to live to be 100 years old, and Peter's not. Um, <clears throat> Peter was not so cautious. Um, but he came first, and he stooped down, and he stooping down, looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. So he looks in, he sees <clears throat> the linen that Jesus had been wrapped in, and it's there, but Jesus isn't, which is odd, right? I mean, if you're going to sneak a body out of a tomb, I mean, if you're the Romans and you're going to just take it by night in order to get it away from his followers and be able to make sure you're going to protect the body, if you're doing it to protect it, you're going to keep it wrapped and get it out. If you're stealing the body of Jesus, okay, you're a thief. You're not going to take the time to uncover him and fold it up. I mean, one of the Gospels, I don't remember which one at this moment, talks about the, the cloth that went over his face was folded and laying there. I mean, Jesus was obviously neat and orderly. He took the cloth off his face when he got up and folded it up and put it there. Um, <clears throat> but obviously this is odd that the clothes are lying there. <clears throat> but John didn't go in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen clothes lie. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Notice what... What did I say at the beginning? It's like he's laying out for the courtroom very specific information here. Well, that, I was talking about the witnesses. But here as he's giving the information, he's giving such fine details about this, um, what they saw when they went in. 
And so here we have John. He's at the door. He's just peeking in. And then Peter, of course, comes, and Peter just barrels right in there. And um, that tends to line up with Peter's personality. I jump in with both feet kind of guy. Jesus is walking on the water. Oh, that looks cool. I'm going to do it too. And jumps out of the boat and starts trying to walk to Jesus. Of course, finds he can't do it in his own strength. He has to keep his eyes on Christ. But this is the personality of these two men really, really showing up here. So they describe, John describes what they see. And then it says in verse number eight, then went in also the other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. It's good, that's a good little phrase to underline here in chapter 20. Seeing and believing. This is going to come up again. We like to criticize Thomas because Thomas said, unless I see, I won't believe. Lest I touch, I won't believe. Yet John is specifying here. He's laying down, I, I feel like the way this is written right here, he's laying down the groundwork for Thomas, the story of Thomas to show up here in a minute. Because he said, I saw and I believed. Um, and, and he's laying the groundwork for what Jesus is going to say here, concluding the chapter when he starts talking about, blessed are those who have never seen this yet they believe. Talking about future believers like us who weren't there, who didn't see, yet we believe the account that John is telling here. Um, we by faith believe it. John specifies that he had to see. He saw and he believed. It was by seeing that he believed. Look at verse 9. Far as yet, he's explaining why seeing was so important for the two of them. He said, far as yet, or up until this point, they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Now, this is interesting because you have John, the one who's laying on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. You have Peter who's barreling in there. I mean, they're in the inner circle. Peter's the one giving this great confession. And Jesus says, on this rock, I build my, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. These are the two guys who have been with Jesus in the closest, most intimate times. And he says, we still didn't understand the scriptures yet, that Jesus was going to rise again. Now, I find that even more interesting when we consider that Jesus had told them so clearly, I'm going to die, and three days later, I'll rise again. I mean, he told them that in those exact words. And yet they still didn't understand. And of course, there are passages like Psalm 16 <clears throat> that foretold the resurrection. Psalm 16 and verse number, verse number 10. This is one of those verses that John and Peter didn't yet understand. Later, they're going to understand it. When are they going to start seeing it and understanding it? Well, after the road to Emmaus, whoever was there with Jesus when are they going to understand it? After the Holy Spirit comes and the Holy Spirit's indwelling them and teaching them, now they're going to start reading the Old Testament and going, oh, that was about Jesus. Oh, when this happened, that's what that was talking about, which is why when John writes his gospel, there's a number of times where he refers to that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And sometimes he even says, as Isaiah said. Why? Because by this point, he's reread Isaiah 
with that indwelling Holy Spirit. And now he understands what Isaiah was talking about. Oh, he's talking about the Messiah. Uh, he, no, no telling how many times he had sung Psalm 16. And yet, up to this point, he didn't understand that verses, um, well, I, I like starting with verse 9, really, that it's about Jesus. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope, for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Notice the capital letters on holy one. Not talking about David. I mean, David was dead. David was buried. It wasn't talking about David. It was talking about the Messiah. But John didn't understand that yet. Peter didn't understand that yet. But he said, when I saw, we believed. Verse number 9 uh, sorry, verse number 10, then the disciples went away again unto their own home. So they had some place here in um, Judea that they had taken up residence, a place where they were staying, and they see that, and they go home quite satisfied. I mean, the, their faith has increased. We've already seen that Peter and John believed earlier in the Gospel of John. But now, boy, their faith is really, really taking root. Um, let's continue. So they go off the scene. That scene closes. We open up the next scene. And we find Jesus and Mary. But Mary, uh-huh. Did somebody say something? Sorry, I thought somebody said something. Verse number 11, but Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping. And as she wept and stooped down, so at some point she comes along, maybe she was running along behind them, um, whatever the case, she's come up back up to the tomb. And as she wept and stooped down and looked into the sepulcher and seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Now, I think this is interesting. Peter and John have just been here. John stooped and looked in, just like Mary. Peter went in, and then John went in. And it doesn't say, they didn't see an angel. They didn't see two angels. He doesn't record here anyway. Maybe he was just putting the emphasis on what was most important. But he doesn't talk about the angels. Maybe they couldn't see them. Maybe they were blinded to it. Maybe it was something that Mary needed to see. And I mean, I, I've heard missionary stories of missionaries around the world that um, they knew they were protected. This one lady uh, in World War II, they knew they were protected from the Japanese inside this house. The Japanese never would come in and take them, and she never understood why. And sometime after the war, she met up with one of these soldiers, I believe some kind of officer, um, and he was talking about their bodyguards. And she asked what he meant. And he said, oh, you had guards that were in white robes around your house guarding y'all. And that's why we never came in. She couldn't see the angels. She and the other two missionaries, uh, she and another lady. And then there was a man who had some kind of disease. I believe he had diabetes. And he couldn't get his medications. But he, the Lord protected him. And kept him alive during that time. And anyway, um, 
There were angels there, Darlene Dibler Rose. She never saw the angels, but the Japanese saw the angels and stayed out. Yeah, could be. Mm-hmm. 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 Yep, exactly. Yeah. Mary needed to see those angels for some reason. She needed that extra encouragement. She needed that extra, um, the extra something here to build her faith. And so she looks in and he points out that she sees this, one at the head, one at the feet. Verse 13, and they say unto her, woman, why weepest thou? I think that's a funny question. You know, she's at a funeral. Come on, why are you crying at a funeral? I just don't know. I mean, somebody's dead. Why would we be crying? Jesus has told them he's going to rise again. This is a legitimate question for the angel to be asking. Why are you crying? I mean, of all funerals, why would you show up crying at Jesus's? I mean, he's already told you he's coming back alive. Of course, they don't reference this, but as a disciple of Jesus, as one who's followed him, um, if they're paying attention, Jesus has told them clearly that um, he's not going to stay dead. But they ask her, why are you weeping? She saith unto them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Now, she has seen him crucified. Surely he didn't look that different than before he was crucified. I mean, obviously he's been bloody, he's been marred more than any man. I understand that, but now he's cleaned up, now he's in his Um, glorified body, and here Mary looks at him, and she doesn't recognize him. And I wonder if it's just because of the whole shock of the whole thing, and now Jesus is standing there. He's supposed to be dead. His body's been taken away somewhere else, right? I mean, that's what she's assuming. And so she looks up. Here's Jesus standing behind her. She doesn't assume it's the Messiah. She doesn't recognize his face. She doesn't recognize his voice. Obviously, he's not wearing his old clothes because those have been gambled away, right? It could have still been dark um, because when she came, it was still dark. So it could be early on. Maybe she can't see his face really well. Um, Whatever the case is, um, she doesn't recognize him at first. Maybe he allowed blindness to her eyes to where she couldn't recognize him. That um, for that first moment, I mean, here he allows her to see the angels but not recognize him. Whatever the case is, maybe he's standing in the shadows as the sun is rising. I don't know. Whatever the case is, um, let's see. Verse 14. Sorry, nope. 
Okay, verse 14 is where we left off. She didn't know it was Jesus. Verse 15, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? So the angels have asked, Why are you weeping? She said, Because they've taken him away. Now Jesus says, Why are you weeping? Whom seekest thou? Who are you looking for? She's supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. I told Laura this morning, she must have been a pretty good-sized woman. She says, wherever you put him, you tell me, and I'll go get him and take him away. I mean, I'm sure she's probably thinking she's going to get her friends to help her, going to go get Peter and John. I don't know what she's thinking. Whatever it is, she wants the body of her Lord. She says, take me to him, and I would like to claim possession. She's going to see that he's properly taken care of. And in verse 16, Jesus saith unto her, Mary. Isn't that interesting? He calls her name. And this takes the blinders off. This makes her realize who this is. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him. So she's turned her face away from him at this point. And she looks at him and says unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. So if the, the reason why he <clears throat> gives this explanation, which is to say master, if you're reading this in Greek, you're going to come to this word Rabboni, which is actually a Chaldean or an Aramaic word. And he specifies it in Greek, which is to say didasko, which is the Greek, or master. We read these things in English and we're like, why is he given the description? They're two words that mean the same thing. It was because of the original language. As um, he's writing this down, as it's being recorded in Greek, <clears throat> he's giving the explanation for those who may not know the Aramaic term, Rabboni. He says, that's the word she said. She spoke in Aramaic to him. But <clears throat> it was the word that means master or teacher. Verse 17, Jesus saith unto her, touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Look at the unity of this statement. Go tell them I'm going to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. <clears throat> it's powerful here that Jesus connects them. That we are here, we are unified. The Father is our Father, our God. But look at the beginning of this. He says, touch me not. I just think this is an interesting contrast to what he's going to tell Thomas in a minute. He's going to tell Thomas, touch me. Um, but right now, he says, don't touch me. I haven't ascended back to my Father. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. <clears throat> then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst. So this brings us to the third scene later in the day. <coughs> Jesus and his disciples. 
notice the fear here. The disciples are locked in. Why? Because they're afraid of um, they're afraid of the Jews. They're afraid that the Pharisees are going to decide, let's go kill his followers. Um, Passover's finished. Sabbath is over. It's the first day of the week. Let's go in and take them, and we'll execute them as well. So they're here. They're hiding. They're in fear. I, I, was, I attended a church one time, tiny little church, had about five people. And I understood why there were only five people when the service started. And I had friends who were coming and meeting me at that church that day. And um, I get a text from some of them. And they said, hey, Aaron, we're outside, but we can't get in the church. Service was going on. And I thought that was weird. I got up and went out and opened the door. And sure enough, it was locked. Anyway, the pianist um, finally sees all the commotion and people going in and out of church, and she comes back there, and she says, oh, well, when church starts, we lock the doors. No one at the door. Uh, when service starts, they lock it. You know, it's us few and no more. Today, that church has three people, the pianist, her husband, and her son. Her son leads the singing for, I guess, dad sings? I don't know. Um, but they have locked out the community. I mean, literally, the church was in a black community. They weren't going to invite black people to their church. And so God just struck down that church, and it started dying. And then they start locking the door so that no one can get in. Um, they were in fear. They were in fear. And so they locked the doors because they wanted to feel safe inside their church building so visitors couldn't get in. And... Um, here we have the disciples. Things haven't changed much, have they? The disciples are in the room. They got the doors closed because they're afraid. Fear can strike us down and make us unusable. And the disciples are locked in this room, practically, and Jesus shows up. Notice what it says. Jesus came and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. He probably would have simply said shalom, which is the Hebrew greeting, peace be unto you. He wishes peace for them. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. You remember what Peter, uh, what John said about he and Peter? He said, we saw and believed. Now Jesus shows up and what does he do? He starts showing them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they what? When they saw the Lord. There's so much in this chapter about seeing. Then said Jesus to them again, peace be unto you. So he again gives them this shalom greeting. As my father hath sent me, even so send I you. Now he has talked so much. John recorded so much in the gospel of John about the sayings where Jesus would talk about as my father sent me, my Father sent me here. I've come from the Father. I'm saying what the Father told me to say. And so he's gone through this throughout the book, and now he comes here and says, Jesus told us, like the Father sent me, I'm sending you. In other words, you already know what it meant for the Father to send me. Now I'm sending y'all out. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Now, this causes confusion for some people because 
the Holy Spirit comes in um, the book of Acts. He comes, I believe it was like 50 days after the resurrection. 40 days later, he ascended to the Father. Was it 10 days after that or seven? Anyway, after he ascended to the Father, about a week or so later, right? He, the whole, they were gathered in the upper room and the Holy Spirit came. But why is he breathing on them now? I mean, he's standing there in the midst and he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Ghost. Was the, did they get the special dose of the Holy Ghost right here in the room? I don't think that's what happened. But it can cause some real confusion for some people. It's real simple. He was telling them what's going to happen. He was laying the groundwork for what's going to happen in the upper room. And he's leaving no question for where the wind came from. They heard the sound of a rushing mighty wind. I had the thought this morning, Jesus blew on them and about 50 days later or so, the wind finally caught up to them. Could it be that they were so separated from God that it took that long for the Holy Ghost to come? I, I don't, I, I'm not saying that that's necessarily the case, but they have some things that have to happen before the Holy Spirit's going to come. Jesus is giving them a foreshadowing, and when they hear that wind come into that room, they'll know exactly where it came from. Jesus has already blown. He's already breathed on them and told them to receive the Holy Ghost. And then it's interesting. Look at verse 23, another verse that causes a lot of confusion sometimes. He says, the Holy Spirit's going to come or receive the Holy Ghost. Actually, he commands them, whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Now, of course, this has gone to a false doctrine that, you know, the Pope, who Peter was the first up supposedly, that they have, he has power to forgive people's sin or to tell them you're going to condemn people to hell tell people they can go to heaven, <clears throat> whatever. Um, but I think the best explanation I've ever heard of this, he's giving the disciples authority. I mean, isn't that what the Great Commission was about? He gives them power or authority. They've been given authority already over evil spirits. I mean, they have authority over, over things, Jesus gives them authority. He sends them out to preach the gospel with authority. He's telling them, whoever sins, ye remit, they're remitted. Whoever sins are forgiven, they're forgiven. Whoever sins, are, you say, yeah, you're condemned. You're con How is it that they can have this type of authority? I heard, I believe it was G. Campbell Morgan explained it this way. He said, the disciples were given the authority that when they went out and preached the gospel, they could clearly tell someone, if you believe, you are saved. We have the authority to do that. I can't go into a neighborhood and tell a bunch of little kids, you're saved, you're saved, you're saved. You know, or like the CEF missionary's wife, I saw one time that um, we were in a really rough neighborhood in New Orleans. She put, this kid walks up, she puts her arm around him. She said, do you believe in Jesus? He said, yes. She said, you're saved. 
do you believe in Jesus? And the kid said, yes, you're saved. I mean, she was flopping salvation on lots of them. You're saved. I mean, she was given this proclamation. She didn't explain what Jesus did, who Jesus was. Just, do you believe in Jesus? You're saved. And I was standing there quite disturbed. No gospel presentation. No, just, do you believe? You're saved. She's, pro- she's putting salvation on all these kids. I think she took that a little too far because they have to receive Christ, believe and receive, the scripture says. Now, the emphasis of John's gospel is belief, it's faith. You put your faith in Jesus Christ, and if you truly put your faith in Jesus Christ in the process of believing, you're receiving him. I understand. Those are united in this. But I have the authority, and this is how I usually present the gospel with kids. When I get to the end and the child prays to receive Christ, I look them right in the eyeballs and tell them, if you truly believed, Jesus has promised. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. I have the authority to tell them that. To tell them you are forgiven. From this day on, your sins are forgiven. And I always add, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. The disciples are given this great, wondrous, amazing authority. Let's keep going. We need to get to the end of this. We come to the fourth, Jesus and Thomas. But Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. My dad says this right here shows why you should never skip church. Because Jesus might show up and you'll miss it. Anyway, that was always convincing for me. It got really bad when I would go away to preach in another church and after service, I'd call my dad, hey, how'd things go? And he'd tell me great things that happen. I'm like, that doesn't happen when I'm there. Maybe I should stay gone. Um, they They had some amazing services when I'd be out of town preaching somewhere. I I don't know. I was starting to worry. Jesus showed up when I left. But no, Thomas wasn't there for some reason, and, and Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, we have seen the Lord. Notice the sight again. But he said unto them, except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger in the print of the nails, and thrust punch. I mean, this is a harsh word. Punch my fist. Thrust my hand into his side. I will not believe. And after eight days again, his disciples were within. Now, don't get too hard on on Thomas here because the other disciples saw. Jesus walked in. He showed them the prince. He showed them his side, and they believed. Thomas shows up and he says, unless I get to see, unless I get to see like you did, I'm not going to believe. I mean, John said that he and Peter believed the resurrection because they had looked inside the tomb themselves and seen what was there. Seeing, they believed. So don't be too harsh on Thomas here. Because, I mean, it was Thomas that when um, Lazarus died, he said, if we go to Bethany, Bethany, he said, they're going to take him and they're going to kill him. Well, we might as well go with him and we'll all die. I mean, Thomas was willing to die with Jesus. Yes, I sense some sarcasm in his voice there. 
But he was willing to die with Jesus. Well, until the time came and then he ran. But, you know, he meant well. Thomas is not being a complete heathen here. He just wants equal treatment. It's not fair. He didn't get to see it. And unless he sees it, he's not going to believe either. And in verse 26, after eight days again, his disciples were within and Thomas with them. (laughs) He was there this time. He was with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut. Isn't that interesting? A week later, they still got the door shut. And stood in the midst and said, peace be unto you. Gives them again this Jewish greeting. Then saith he to Thomas, now look at this. Jesus has the love and compassion and care to look at Thomas and to point him out and call him by name. The one who's doubting at this point, we call him doubting Thomas, but he's only doubting because he's the only one that didn't see. Jesus says to him, reach hither thy finger and behold my hands. And reach hither thy hand. You think Jesus was listening last week when Thomas showed up? And thrust it into my side. He uses the harsh term that Thomas had used. Take it and punch me in the hole. Right here. I got the scar. Punch me in it. Punch me with your fist. And be not faithless, but believing. What's the whole purpose of the Gospel of John? That ye might believe. He lays out this final story, these final moments that he records here in the Gospel of John. He's bringing it in. I mean, we have a major home run here. We have a triple hitter. I mean, powerful, powerful conversation he's having with Thomas. Don't be faithless, but believe. Whatever it takes, I want you to believe. Touch me in the, the, the holes in my hands. Touch them. Punch me in the side. Put your fist in my side. Feel where the hole was. Look at Thomas's response. And Thomas, Thomas answered and saith, said unto him, my Lord and my God. The final confession of the Gospel of John. My Lord and my God. You deny the deity of Christ, then rip this page out of your Bible and throw it away. Use it for toilet paper. I don't know. I I know I'm being dramatic, but to, to read this verse and reject the deity of Christ is spitting in the face of a holy God. Thomas was there. He saw him, and he said, my Lord and my God. Thomas is acknowledging the deity of Christ. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, believe, sorry, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Again, John's been laying out this whole chapter Saw, believed, saw, believed. If I see, I'll believe. Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Hence ends the climax of the Gospel of John. Blessed are those who don't get to see, yet they believe. Who's he talking about? you and me, 
I didn't see Jesus. I didn't see him crucified. I didn't get to see the empty tomb. I didn't get to see the clothes lying there. I didn't get to touch his, his, the, the scars in his hands. I didn't get to put my fist in his side. Yet I believe. And Jesus said, blessed are those who didn't see, yet believe. And then he brings us to the conclusion here, which we used in the introduction and over and over and over throughout our study, and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples. There was a lot of other stuff that he did, which are not written in this book. Of course, John may also be referencing to the other gospels. There were many other miracles and things that Jesus did, and they're recorded, many of them in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He said, but these are written, the things I recorded here, including this conversation with Thomas. These are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. What a powerful, powerful book. And that's why I encourage parents, if you have a child who's doubting their salvation, start doing family devotions in the Gospel of John. Start at chapter 1 and say, now, we're going to read about some people who met Jesus. Are you doubting Jesus? Are you doubting his, even his existence? Let's read about people who met Jesus and what they said about him. And just start reading through the Gospel of John. And you get there and you hear what Peter said and what Philip said, and what Thomas said, and what Martha said, and what these men of Samaria said, and you start reading all these. It's amazing how faith is increased. One of my kids asked one day, asked Laura and I some question about God's existence, and they were really starting to doubt it all of a sudden, out of nowhere. And they were, the, the, the three oldest were pretty little. And so we did that as a family. I mean, we only got about three or four chapters in. I mean, they were convinced. Jesus is alive, and he is real. How was it? They just heard a few people that met him talk about him, and they were convinced. Why? The purpose of this book is to increase our faith in Jesus Christ. And I've seen it happen in our family. Faith increased as we read these witnesses, as we read these testimonies. Our next and final lesson, we'll look at the postscript. What was this that John added on to the end of the book? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your love and your care and Lord, we see your compassion and your gentleness with Thomas. Your gentleness and compassion with Mary. And Lord, we just thank you for these witnesses. We thank you for this testimony. Lord, how it increases our faith. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be believers who don't have to see special signs. Don't have to have special fuzzy feelings, but that we just simply have our faith in you. Lord, I pray that you would increase our faith. Lord, help us to trust you more. Lord, we thank you for loving us. Thank you for dying for us on the cross, and we thank you that we have hope of eternal life because you died and were buried and rose again from the dead. And Lord, we thank you so much for the power that you've given us as your children. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.